Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital business revolution by speaking with the business executives and thought leaders who are profoundly changing how the world works, lives, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Den Howlett, a legendary writer, analyst, and commentator who advocates for business customers and keeps the tech vendors honest. Den, welcome to Cloud Wars Live podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Hey, thanks very much indeed, Bob. Good to talk to you always. Dan, you had mentioned this notion of ethics in development, and that's certainly a powerful, relevant subject. But with so many things going on in the tech world right now, why did that one pop to the top of your list? Well, basically, my educational background is in a combination of sociology, psychology, a particular branch of psychology called abnormal psychology. In other words, the psychology of criminals, um, as it's normally understood. And, yeah. and, or, and deviance, okay, as it's normally understood, however you want to define that. I did a minor in, in uh, philosophy. And the, one of the reasons that I did that was that because in a, in a very early part of my life, I had thought of uh, going to Oxford uh, University to do what's called politics, philosophy and economics. Yeah, yeah. One of those big catch-alls that's been around for quite a long time. And it's actually a, an area of study that I find find interesting it's one of those areas of study you, you're kind of either into it or it bores the pants off you depending <laughs> on, on on your your point of view and and as i've looked at this whole business of artificial intelligence and actually you can apply this to to many many areas of, of technology the, the whole social arena for instance is fraught with problems around around ethics it struck me that the way that the industry was talking about it is fundamentally wrong and the reason for that is is because you know, developers are not taught how to do things ethically. They're basically taught, here's a problem. Here's how we'd like to see it solved. Go away and solve it, okay? They're not given any guidelines as to, oh, by the way, take into account this, that, and the other. They're just told to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And they don't have a grounding in, in what this topic is about. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that from an academic standpoint, there are different schools of thought about what matters and what doesn't in the real world. And that creates incredible tensions. It's a little bit like saying, you know, do you believe in Pavlov's dog as the way to, to teach people what's, what's going on and how they respond to the world? Or are you a Freudian guy who's, who's very worried about the guy next door who's got an Oedipus complex or what have you? I mean, they're so <laughs> fundamentally different in that, in that yeah. sense that trying, that trying to reconcile what needs to happen and the frameworks around which you organize any sort of ethical response is difficult, okay? And, and what we're seeing is, you know, you've got this idea, for instance, of the Supreme Court of Facebook. Well, that's a joke for a start, right? So who's going yeah. to run it? Yeah. Uh, who's going to oversee it? On what basis are they going to do it? And on and on and on. And what we don't have, and this is not just true in the US, it's true globally, is we don't have a contract, a form of contracts, if you will, between academia, governments, and industry, and customers to determine what this looks like. Now, you know, the minute I say stuff like that, everybody throws their hands up and says, oh my God, you know, we've never been able to do anything by committee in the past, we'll never do it in the future. Well, you know what, guys, you've got to, because at some point, somebody has to, you know, to put down, a, someone somewhere has to put down a framework upon which others can agree. Now, I think that's going to be especially difficult in America because if I take the example of the FDA, the FDA has been uh, trying to promote some, well, actually, it's been trying to, uh, to uh, implement some legislation around traceability 
of yes. narcotics, okay? Now, in Europe, we didn't have a problem with that, okay? The government of Europe came together. They said, hey, we'll, we'll run the framework. We'll get it done. Here it is. Throw it over the wall. Thank you very much. Implement it. And the, the pharma company said, yeah, okay, fine. We'll do that. In the US, the FDA said, oh, okay, guys, here's the legislation. You pharma guys, you go work it out, right? Yeah. What possible, yeah. What possible chance is there of GlaxoSmithKline and whoever the others are and any of those people that play in the pharma space ever agreeing on anything, right? <laughs> Zero. Dan, so what's your view? And I, I know that this is an incredibly big landscape, but if you have some examples, not necessarily by name, but the requirements for GDPR were, were certainly not trivial. Are some businesses in, you know, would you say in general uh, in Europe, are they being able to adopt this in ways that bring with it some innovation that they can apply? Or is it one of these, are, are businesses generally viewing it as sort of pain in the butt bolt-on that they have to do sideways? How, how are they addressing this and in incorporating it into their, their daily lives? Okay, so when the hammer went down in, in May 2018, uh, or just prior to that, there was a tremendous amount of fear around what this would represent because the, the penalties for non-compliance are, are not trivial, right? Uh, yeah, 4% of revenue over 10 million and all the rest of it. What's actually happened is a little bit different to what we expected in the sense that the states, the individual states who are administering it in their own jurisdictions, are actually taking a fairly light-touch approach to it. We thought that Google, Facebook in particular, would be immediate targets for, for compliance. And that hasn't really happened, uh, not yet. Now, what seems to ha be happening is that the legislators are saying, okay, so we've got this GDPR thing, which is really a framework. We're not 100% certain how it's going to be interpreted because, of course, we haven't had any cases go through the courts yet. And, and therefore... Let's just try and deal with baseline requirements around registration topics, around data handling topics, and so on, before we start getting um, before we start getting heavy-handed. Now, most recently, for instance, Microsoft was it wasn't the hauled before the coals as such, but it was it has has compliance issues uh, as it relates to GDPR, and the the approach that's been taken there is to say, look. We think that there's an issue. This is how we've, we see the issue. We'd like you to tell us how you're going to fix it. And by the way, there's a time frame over which this will happen. Now, that's a negotiated settlement with no obvious penalties in sight. I personally think that's a very good approach because with a piece of new legislation that's not been tested yet, the last thing you want to be doing is seeing lawsuits left and right. If you stand back from that, you might say, well, hang on a minute, does this legislation have any teeth if, if legislative administrators are basically saying, well, you know, let's negotiate this, negotiate that. No, that's not what's happening. What they're doing is, is starting to look to see where the boundaries actually fall. So that's from a compliance standpoint. Now, some companies within the industry itself, and I'm thinking very much of the, of the CRM type organizations, the web content man management firms, those kinds of people, where they know that they're handling all sorts of data coming from all right. sorts of sources, including tremendous amounts of personal data, they have turned around and said, view this as an opportunity. See this as an opportunity to clean up your databases, clean up your e email lists, uh -huh. and, and go forward from there. Dan, you've, you've had, uh, you raised a question about the whole notion of CX. You know, is this really a thing? And where, what, what's the state of that market today? 
Well, customer experience is, a, is an incredibly complex topic. I mean, uh, I, I, I won't pretend to be the best person to, to talk about it in any detail. My colleague, John Reed, is, is, has been following this for a long, long time. I think, yeah. I, think he's up to, I think he's up to something like 20-odd part opus on this. I think he's going to write a book at some stage. Customer experience is a, is, is a rapidly evolving topic in the sense that this whole notion of, of, of firms, people who want to sell you stuff, getting close to the customer. We, we've talked about it for at least the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. Yeah. And it's never really meant anything, okay? I mean, we have this whole idea of CRM, customer relationship management. Okay? Do you remember that when that first came along? Yes. Oh, this is great. <laughs> it's going to get us close to the customer. It had, it had nothing to do with customers. It certainly had <laughs> nothing to do with the relationship with those customers. It had everything to do with management and management of the damn sales force. Yes. And what they were doing, it's like, duh. And since that time, we've kind of added to it and melded it and, Hey, there's customer field service. Whoopie doo! Actually, does that, yeah. mean running, does that mean running the field service or keeping the truck truckers on the road? You know, what, what does it yeah. mean? Yeah, Dan, I always I mean, thought it was funny in that you know what you're you're putting about this thing with CRM, customer relationship management. And I was thinking, you know, starting about 15, 20 years ago, somebody was managing that relationship, and it sure as hell was not the uh, seller. You know, the world was changing, and you know that thing tipped. But it's uh, customer relationship management sounded better than account control or uh, Salesforce automation. So, you know, taking these sort of monolithic little tiny steps out of the swamp, right? And we were starting to walk a little more upright, but we we're nowhere near to being sort of the uh, homo erectus here quite yet. It, it, it is funny watching some of, you know, looking back with the gift of hindsight to see, you know, where this industry's come. Sometimes some big steps and sometimes not. But who's doing this at least? fairly well in your view oh boy target does a pretty good job i mean the notion of customer experience comes from this this reality that we're working in a another buzzword for you omni-channel way of doing things okay so new you know we used to go to the store and that was it then we had delivery and that was it we could go to the store we could have stuff delivered and now we can do things digitally and amazon's come along and a, a plethora of ways of of acquiring stuff across multiple channels uh, you know whether it's on your phone or whatever and so that's opened the door to all sorts of problems around well how do we actually deal with customers in each of those environments now nobody has fully got this cracked by some considerable margin you know the big big retail brands that think that they've that they own the customer the levi's of this world for instance they think they're getting there i'm a levi's customer believe it or not and i have the levi's app on my phone and it's absolute garbage, <laughs> right? So they've got, Black, they've got Black Friday coming up, the same as everybody else, and they send me an email saying, hey, you, you get an opportunity to come into the store a day in advance before all this starts. So, you know, you get first dibs at what's available. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, just, just come in with your phone with the app on it, and it's like, I can't even get the damn app to load. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get in a car, drive somewhere, park walk in yeah it's funny Dad. I, I gotta tell the you know share a story along those lines uh, a few years ago i talked to a guy he had just been made the cio of, at the, what was at the time the largest and i think widely regarded as the, the most successful airline in asia and he said when he joined you know the first thing he did he said you know i just wanted to be quiet and understand walk around talk to people in the company listen to what's going on he said everybody's saying oh you know it's the age of the customer and we've got to 
give more face-to-face experience and more this and more that, more personal touch. He had gone and then done a survey with a lot of the best clients of this airline. And what the clients were saying pretty much, you know, boiled down was said, I have nothing against people, but I don't want to have any human interaction until I step foot onto the airplane itself. I don't want to be greeted by customers. I don't want to be coddled. I don't want, you know, to be told how wonderful I am. Let me just use the technology I have to get onto the plane. But he said to people in the company, you know, the first reaction, he says, well, that research has to be wrong. And so we, we, we have this tendency to think there's one way to do things, but, you know, whether it's omni channel or dealing with hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, we're all different. And as we find these different choices and ways of engaging with the world, it's going to be really tricky, I think, to your point about what is this CX thing in a world where everybody expects to be able to get it his or her own way. It's going to be a nightmare, essentially, is is how it's going to be, because um, (laughs) internally at at, at our business, we talk a great deal about personalization. And that is another of these topics du jour. What does that actually mean? Now, you know, when I, when I started on the journey of trying to figure out how, how might I give Bob just what Bob needs? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I did when, with our little registration form was I said, just tell us what you're interested in, okay? And what I expected to see were patterns. I expected there to be patterns around horizontal style applications, say HR. I expected there to be patterns around vertical industries, say retail, automotive, whatever. What I discovered over... A very very short period of time. I think I I initially had a cohort of a, just 150. There were no patterns, and and that immediately created a dilemma for me because it's like, well, how am I going to surface what yeah. each of these people want? And the truth of the matter is that I can't. There there is no way of doing it. Okay. I just want to repeat that so that everybody hears it. There is no <laughs> way of doing it. Okay. And, and trust yeah. me, I've spent. I've spent two and a half years trying to find a way of doing it. But you can approximate for it, okay? You can infer some things about what people may be interested in and refine the degree to which you're able to personalize the content in in which they're interested because ultimately this is a content problem. Now, it's interesting that you talk about airlines because you have that particular example. I look at airlines slightly differently in the sense that once you get onto the the silver sausage, as I call it, or the silver tin (laughs) can, The hermetically Uh sealed sardine can, depending on who you're flying with, right? Right, right. That everybody's in the same boat. Well, actually, that's not true. Because if you talk to my mate, Brian Summer, who's a platinum up the wazoo American (laughs) Airlines guy, he, he, for some reason, has managed to... He must be a magnet for the worst possible seats on the plane. (laughs) He's constantly complaining. I'm in the back of the plane. I've got a middle seat. The, the seat doesn't move. The, the, you know, the, the person in front of me is bouncing around, and it's yeah, he can't get him service. But dude, why why do you continue to fly American? It turns out that he doesn't have a great deal of choice because the airlines, at least in America and certainly in the UK to a degree, well, the cartels basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's 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 not beat about the bush. And 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 so you know, United has United has Chicago and Denver and. American has wherever, wherever poor old Brian flies out of, and, and so it goes on. And, and so, you know, you get what you're given, right? Now, is it the airline or is it something else? And, and so this notion of customer experience, we tended to view as being very much from the corporate, try and serve that customer appropriately thing without even thinking about where does it start? 
And customer experience starts with people, right? Starts with employees. I've argued for some years now that if we think about human capital management, that's an awful expression, but we all know what it means. Yes. Should, shouldn't we really be viewing that as a mirror to what real customer, customer relationship management is about, okay? Shouldn't we view it in the, in the same terms? Because if you want to treat customers well, why do you treat your employees so damn badly? How do you expect Doris on the shop floor or in the retail store to have a lovely smile and be truly interested in the customer when you're paying her minimum wage yeah. and giving her no yeah. benefit whatsoever. It's just not going to happen, right? Dan, so I on. sure agree with you on that completely, especially in this notion of, uh, you know, you're saying we've got to treat our customers better. We've got to, you know, all the litany of things that, you know, you've talked about and I've mentioned here over the last couple of minutes. And yet to deliver that, we're going to count on these people that we've almost as employers formed an adversarial relationship with. That's one of the things, Dan, that I get most optimistic about is, entrepreneurial mindsets, technology that powers this, and better alternatives for people. Ultimately, I think all these things are going to get better. That is my hope, but we're a long way from that. I'd like to agree with you, Bob, but I find it a little difficult, except in one set of circumstances. Yeah. And that is is that, you know, the the more that the economy is operated on the, the basis that it is today, the more difficult it becomes for companies to be uh, continually profitable and continue to grow because there's a law of diminishing returns. You know, if you don't have any money, you can't buy stuff, right? If you end up in a pile of debt, you're going to be made bankrupt eventually. Bill Gates can only own so many iPhones or Android or whatever, Windows phones probably (laughs) in his case. The the very wealthy who are accumulating all this this wealth can only own the same amount of stuff that you and I do fundamentally, right? They might have two or three times more, but they can't have 200 times more. That's the point, right? Yeah. So eventually you get to a point where economically you can't grow. You can't squeeze more productivity except, hey, guess what? We have this gig economy. We have these slaves over here that we can pay bucks per hour. And, you know, they'll do it all. No, that's a dead dead way of working, quite frankly. So some firms have understood this and realized that if they go back in, into their history books and think about what Henry Ford did, right, yeah. which was to pay people really well so that his, his employees could buy their own damn stuff, right, uh-huh. then uh-huh. maybe he'd be successful. And guess what? He was, okay? So that's just a very crude way of looking at things. And that kind of brings us, if you will, to this business of, you know, what, what Bill McDermott did with this acquisition of Qualtrics. When I first saw the, the Qualtrics acquisition, like everybody else, I went, wow, that's a huge amount of money. Ryan Smith and his brother have made out like bandits, which they have. And eight yeah. billion is a lot of money, no doubt. Well, they are, the family owns 40% of that company. So you work it out, it's $3.2 billion to those guys. You know, they, they ain't going short change anytime soon. There's that element of it. I was not that concerned about it. What I was trying to figure out was, how does this actually fit together? And unfortunately, Rob Enslin, who runs all the cloud operations in, in the blog post that he wrote on the SAP somewhere or other, used the airline example where he said, hey, just imagine if you could marry all the sort of information that you know about customers together with the operational data about how the airlines operate. You'd, you'd end up with this great customer experience. It's like, oh my God, Rob, you, 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 pick, you probably picked the worst example in the world because everybody I know hates the airlines. So I then went and spent a lot of time 
digging into what Qualtrics has done and what it's doing and how it pieces it all together. And the story that Qualtrics puts forward is, on its face, it's compelling, okay? So if you take customer experience, employee experience, brand experience, and product experience, if you take those four vectors yeah. representing what you need to know in order to make really good decisions, then it kind of hangs together. The question then comes, you know, can SAP as a company take all that stuff and put it together with their operational data and have it be greater than the whole? There's a yeah. question mark on that. There's a very, very big question mark on that. And one that I will be exploring a little bit later because SAP does want to continue the conversation with myself on this one because they know that they know that I, that I have particular views on it. But the more important point is, is this. If McDermott is right, it is a big if. If McDermott is right, forget the fact that he's talking about, hey, this is a game-changing category, blah, 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 blah. That's marketing, okay? He is essentially saying two things. One, I am pivoting SAP, this huge German ERP backbone company, plays in the back office, into one that is central to your business for the purposes of future growth, productivity, employees, uh, employee satisfaction, and so forth. That is a huge statement. That is a massive statement in its own right. That's one element of it. The second element of it is, if he is right, then the likes of Salesforce, for instance, and the likes of Workday have got problems because they don't do any of that stuff, okay? Yeah. They just, they yeah. Just, well, Workday does some of, some of it on the employee side, but it's relatively low level. They, they have a different shtick. Salesforce doesn't. Salesforce is trying to be all things to all people as it relates to the sort of sales and service economy. I think he's got a shot at it, but I think that he has to be very careful how he gets the messaging assembled because at the moment it sounds like motherhood and apple pie larded with a huge amount of, of marketing hype, buzzword compliant and all the rest of it. And not many people listen to that these days. They want to know what the reality is. This is a big, hairy problem. I think it's one that could certainly energize the company if it's done correctly and could lead to something, something very, very different, very new, and ultimately very exciting, which, you know, at my age, we kind of need. I don't know, Dan. I just get the feeling that we're going to erase this back office, front office dichotomy. And I think SAP's done some powerful things to help drive that. Is it all happening perfectly? You know, maybe, maybe not. But I do admire the vision. But that's it, Dan, right? There's the, not the temptation, there's the prospect of great improvement and possibility. And there's the reality of this is hard stuff. Your search on Google for, you know, cultural change consultants. We're going to need a lot of people like that, new skills, new possibilities. So again, pal, thank you, Dan, is great. Really enjoyed it. And I'd also like to thank all of you listeners for joining us here on Cloud Wars Live, where we explore the unfolding adventures of digital business and digital life and how those are profoundly changing how we live, work, play, learn, and experience the world. I hope you'll join us for other episodes of Cloud Wars Live. Please share your feedback with me at bobevanspa at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.